are you? You know, God wants to know, where are you? Genesis chapter three, opening with verses eight through 10 says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So you can see a pattern of blame begins right in the beginning of human history. But isn't it awesome that we have a God who seeks his own creation? We have a God who is intimately and ultimately super loving and caring. And look, I know a lot of people today in the world question this next thing. How can an all powerful and all loving God let the atrocities of this world take place? That is a deeply philosophic question, but it's more emotional than it is logical because God is making a better possible world. God is redeeming that which is lost. God is the one who has bequeathed unto man a measure of freedom. Can, you, can we fathom that for a second? Because as soon as people say, and you have to go with me philosophically before we go there theologically. As soon as people say, why doesn't God stop every evil action? I will retort to you as a theologian because if he stopped every evil action of man, he'd have to stop every action of men and women. Anyone here hate their freedom? No, we love our freedom. We fight for our freedom. We send servicemen and women into battles to continue to maintain freedom. We love freedom. You never see people march against freedom. You see, you see people organizing marches for more freedom. That is the gift of God, my friends. Freedom, the power to do otherwise. And you know what that means? That means that God doesn't say, you're going to love me. What he says is, I love you and I want to be in covenant with you. But that takes something called reciprocal love. There's no such thing as one-sided love. It's, it's infatuation, it's sin, it's lust. But love is an amazing thing. It must be reciprocated. And in the garden, I love the fact that God who knows all things knew exactly how it would go. And yet here we see him. The Lord God came into the garden he made to commune and have fellowship with the couple he made. Our God is deeply intimate. 
You know, there are all these different heresies that have taken place. The Marcionite heresy was an early first century heresy after the time of Jesus and his apostles, where Marcion basically said, the God of the Old Testament is a gnarly dude. He hates everyone and he's really rough and tough and he totally obliterates cities and he brings down fire and ash and brimstone. But Jesus is the God of the New Testament and he's the loving God. And that's a crock because God is the same yesterday, today and forevermore, amen? God does not change, my friends. He's the rock of ages, all right? People will fail you. Friendships will fail you. Family will fail you. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. But lo, he is with us to the end of the age. And so when everyone else on the planet is faithless for us, our God is our rock. And I want you to walk away knowing one thing tonight. Father knows best. You know, I was amazed from the point of when I turned 17 to the time I was about 30, how brilliant my father had become. Apparently all it took was, you know, 15 or 16 years for him to figure it all out. He got really smart. And then I realized he was, he was always brilliant. Father knows best. Our great father in heaven always knows best. And I know someone will say, my father has been an epic, miserable failure. And I will always say, do not project your earthly feelings upon your heavenly father because he's nothing like your dad. He never could be. Your earthly father will always pale in comparison. The best dad on the planet is gonna fail. I'm a father of two and I constantly tell my children, almighty father God is the best Abba. You've got an earthly Abba who loves you, who will do anything for you, but there is no Abba like Father God. He is Abba. And I will disappoint you. I will even from time to time probably give you bad advice. But Almighty God is always there. And we, by Jesus' sacrifice, can cry out at any time. Brothers and sisters, do you know, unfortunately, 90% of the time, we cry in. You ever think about that? Oh man, I got a situation here. Oh no, what am I gonna do? I know, I'm super smart. I'll figure it out by myself. I went to college. <laughs> Stop crying in and learn to cry out. If there's one thing to be depended upon, it's God and not this. You see this? It's not so great. And look at anything on this planet built by the hands of men and women. They all break down, they all rust, they all corrode, they all fall apart, right? All of it. So don't look to the strength of your own ingenuity or your intellect or any of those things. What we need is we need that childlike faith in Almighty God. Not childish faith. Childlike faith. Faith. Remember when they brought young children to Jesus and mothers would wait in line just to have him bless their children and put his hands upon them and the disciples all in their righteousness were like, leave the rabbi alone, he's busy. And you know, he scolded the disciples that day and they were much in need of that. He said, do not prevent the little children from coming to me for to them belong the kingdom of God. 
That childlike faith is so important in the life of a believer from day one to day 5,862 or whatever, how many days you're gonna walk with Christ on this planet from beginning to end and all kinds of in-between. We need to look to him the way children look to their parents. It's called humble dependence. I am humbled and in awe of God and his love. Coming in to commune with those who have already been radical rebels. You see, the gardener had not abandoned his garden and he still has not. You see, the proof of love is the unwillingness to abandon the object of love even when love fails to achieve its desired end. Even still, this is a very special kind of love. We call this unconditional. God unconditionally loves his own creation. But you see, there's a massive problem. Disobedience in the garden put up a real wall of separation. And now the truth of the matter is God loves sinners. Stay with me. But God also hates sinners. Now I'm convinced I'm gonna bother someone in here so you'll forgive me and we'll talk it out later. And I, I always get pushed back on that and they're like, you know, Dr. J, that's not true. Oh, you, you want me to get stronger for you? Let me help you with better words. Uh, in the Psalms, God says, I abhor the soul that sins. And I said hate, let me tell you, abhor is a worse word, it's even stronger in context. It's stronger than that. But here's the rub, and I think this is where a lot of people get it wrong when they read their Bible. The opposite of love is not hate. For love, rightly defined, is to be wholly given over to the good of another. When you love your children, you don't let them play with easy strike matches and M80s, right then? Because they'll blow their little fingers off. Maybe not all the time, but you know, once is bad enough. When you love your children, you set boundaries. There are rules. And everyone hates rules. But let me tell you something, it's rules without relationship that always lead to rebellion in humanity, okay? So when you have a loving parent, you understand those rules. When a father lets his daughter go on her date, you know, and he's already biting every fingernail he has, and she has a curfew of 10.30, and it's 11.30, and she's not answering her cell phone, and it's going right to voicemail. And he can't find her on Life360, the most helpful app on the planet, where your friends stalk you and just want to know where you are getting coffee. Linda stalks me on it, just so you know. You can give poke fun at her on, on Sunday at church. That father, if he's a good father, is already out in his car combing the highways and byways looking for his daughter because he loves her, because he has wholly given over to her good, the best for her. That's not what hate is. Hate in, in itself is a perverted form of love. Love being wholly given over to another, the opposite of that is indifference. Indifference is I could give a rip less about you. I am indifferent. It doesn't affect me. If you're driving down the road and you see a 
a soccer mom's car with seven crazy kids in the back shouting and everything, and she's got car trouble, and you're a loving person, you pull over. You pull over, and you either offer to change that tire or let her use your cell phone or make a call to AAA for her. If you are an indifferent person, you drive by and go, not me. And let's face it, 90% of New Jersey is just like that anyway. Showing how much indifference there is in the world. Ready? You ready for the third scenario? If you drive by that soccer mom and realize she was your third grade teacher who flunked you and made you do third grade again, you pull around, pick up a big box of rocks, and then wail rocks at her as you go by, screaming, I hate you. You see, because there's something different about hate. Hate usually implies that love has gone wrong. That's what hate implies. God loves sinners. He is wholly given over that they might come and be saved and be in covenant with him. God hates sinners because we have broken his heart, because we have broken his rules. We've been, we become rebels. God is never indifferent in a single book of the Bible, ever. You'll never find it, never. God is not indifferent. He is the one who's always been seeking that which is lost. You see, it's an interesting phrase. In the cool of the day literally means wind or spirit. It can even mean breath. It is the Hebrew word ruah. In the ruah, it's, it's, it's an interesting idea. And it usually carries with it the very tangible presence of God. If you want to find it, the first place it appears, it's in Genesis 1-2, where the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so don't think this is some dopey, you know, metaphysical thing. You know, well, God wasn't really in the garden with them. Yeah, God was really in the garden with them. And we see God appear many times in the Old Testament. And yet, when Moses says, I want to see your face, he says, Moses, you will drop dead if you see my face. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and you can see my train of my robe. And yet you see many other people who have all said they've seen God face to face. You wanna hear my theory? It's Jesus in the garden. A pre-incarnate state of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his full incarnation was absolutely God and man. Yet he veiled his own glory enough that men and women could see him in the flesh I believe the Lord Jesus Christ took on a pre-incarnate form where again, he veiled the deity that he possessed enough to be with people. Jesus is here, I believe, in the garden. But notice this, my friends. Notice their actions are implicit admission of guilt completely. Because when God says, where are you? Adam says, clear as day. I heard you. I was afraid, I am naked, and I hid. But I want you to see this, because I'm going to be honest with you. Studying this text, this is the first time I saw it. My hands are heaven. This is the first time I saw it. I've read Genesis a lot, guys. I'm significantly older than you, most of you. We're not going to argue with a couple of people who are out there who I know are in my category. All right? This is, this is amazing. This blew my mind. Where are you? This question was 
God's way of bringing Adam to explain why he was hiding rather than expressing ignorance about man's location. I, I can't even believe people struggle with that one. As if, you know, as if God's an idiot. Uh, where are you, Adam? I can't find you in the garden, buddy. No, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. That's even an argument today in academia. Chris and I go nuts over stuff. We lose our marbles. Like, dude, there's guys out there with three PhDs saying God didn't know where Adam was as if it was some goofball game of hide and seek. It drives me nuts. Seriously, you saw that in the text? God knew exactly where Adam was. Exactly. And he comes anyway. Does that not blow your mind that the God who knows all things, who is fully omniscient, cannot learn or forget anything? Never. He can never forget anything. He can never learn anything. He knows all things. Even your future yet choices to God are known. Knowing that Adam would say something goofy like, it's your fault, God, the woman you put here, all her. God, knowing that Eve would spin it and pass the buck and say, no, 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 it can't be me. It's the serpent. Last time I checked, God, you made everything. Gotta be you. God still comes and says, where are you? Where are you? the concern, the love, and the intimacy. Where are you? You see, shame, remorse, confusion, guilt, hiding, and fear all led to their covert behavior, hiding behind a tree, as if God didn't see them, as if God didn't know where they were or what they would do. There was no place to hide and brothers and sisters, there never is. There never is. No one can hide from the Almighty ever. You can't do it. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. King David said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. There is no hiding from the omniscient God who knows and sees all. And you know, Moses picked up on this principle. You know, half of the tribe of Manasseh said, hey, we like this side of the Jordan, Mo. We know that the other half of the tribe wants to cross over and do all that other stuff, but we like it here. It looks good. There's plenty of grass for the sheep and cattle to eat, and we don't want to go. We know it's the promised land. We like it here. And Moses says, all right, you can stay here if you want to stay here, but I'll tell you this much. You have committed to crossing over and helping your brothers rid the land of the Canaanites. And know this, if you do not do the thing that you have said you shall do, know this, your sin will always find you out. 
Now, I will not make a huge doctrinal point about that, but I'm going to tell you this right now. In my life and the lives of almost every friend I have on earth, we will all say the same thing. You can, f- you can fool some of the people some of the times. You might even be able to fool all or the majority all of the time, but you will never, ever fool God any of the times, ever. He sees all. But what I love about this passage is that God models justice for us because it's something that we don't normally in our own fallen nature get. Did you follow the questions from the Lord? Did you catch them? They caught me by surprise. A couple of things in this passage just got me as I was studying it. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten off that tree I told you not to? Woman, what have you done? You see, these are four questions where the Lord God is modeling justice from the very beginning until the end of human history. He's not an unfair God. He's above and beyond fair. Because I can tell you something about God that no other world religion has. He's a God of grace. And every other world religion or system is a system of works. It's do this, do this, do this, 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 and this, and don't do this or that, and you can make your God happy. Make sure you do this and this, and make sure you maintain these, and you can make your God happy. Every other religion is do, do, do. You know what Christianity is? It's done. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, went to the cross, forever made atonement, rose three days later, and 40 days later, ascended back to the right hand of Almighty God, sat down where he ever lives to make intercession for you and me and the church. Is that not amazing? You know, no priest ever sat down in the Old Testament. You want to know why? There were no chairs in either the tabernacle or both temples because people keep sinning and priests keep on working. No time for a break. It was offer a sacrifice, go to the bronze laver, clean yourself off, offer another sacrifice. Go back to the bronze laver, wash yourself off, go back because the priests were not allowed to have blood on their hands. And if they went into the tabernacle with blood on their hands, they dropped dead. Okay? Priests do not bring about the atonement. God accepts the atonement. We've got to get our theology really square on that one. Jesus Christ, who made perfect, everlasting atonement, went back to the right hands of the Father, which is the place of power and honor, and he sat down, showing that his work of atonement was done. So let me tell you something. I know a lot of people will say a lot of goofy things today. And I know Satan will come and he will attack your faith. It's what he always attacks. Always. You're no good. You're not a real Christian. Real Christians don't do this. How could you be a Christian? Oh, yeah. Look at you. What a loser you are. And every other thing, and I can tell you right now, that's the voice of the enemy. It always is. Because God lovingly disciplines his, chil- his children. That's what he... That's what, Hebrews 8 says, if you are disciplined by God, know that you are children of God. Because you want to know what? Discipline is good. We live in some sick, twisted age where people are saying, you know, 
you spank your child, you're a child abuser. Well, the word of God says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. And if you think that means beat your kid, you're a psychopath. Okay? It means discipline instills godliness and righteousness in children. And guess what? Adults too. Us too. God is disciplining us because he loves us. That's who he is. You see, the just king will not pass sentence without carefully investigating the situation, without careful investigation. He gives Adam and Eve a chance to actually confess in the garden. And we don't know what that would have led to because that's not what they did, but that's not the point. He gave them a real choice. Although fully omniscient, God questions them, giving them that chance to confess their sinful choice. That's amazing, guys. Because in the New Testament, we hang, we hang on dearly. We hang on dearly to 1 John 1.8 that says if we confess our faults, he is faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. And so when Satan comes and he tempts and he pokes and he prods and he condemns you, know this much, the Lord Jesus Christ is waiting for your confession. And you know how long it takes God's forgiveness is instantaneous. He doesn't dangle it over our heads. He doesn't make us crawl upstairs beating ourselves with a whip on our back because Yeshua already paid the price. Jesus already made atonement in full. You see, the voice of the Holy Spirit comes because he is the parakalitos, he is the helper. As Jesus said in John 15, he's the helper. And the Holy Spirit will come and he will say, oh, what are you, uh, 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 hey, what are you doing? Beloved, what are you doing? You see, that's the voice of conviction. Conviction is fantastic. Condemnation is atrocious. God does not condemn us. Not us who are in Christ, no, because Jesus paid it all. You see, in verse 10, Adam told God that he heard his voice and was afraid. Ironically, that, that Hebrew word sama can also mean to obey, which is precisely what Adam did not do. He did not obey. Very often in the book of Genesis and throughout the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, sama literally means to submit or to obey. And the choice was ever so simple you may free lead off of every tree in this garden except for one, only one, one, the one that's right in the middle. That's the only one I want you to eat off, just that one. Do not eat off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet, Adam and Eve lived for hundreds of years after that. But there was a worse death that occurred in that garden. It was spiritual death. Because the very first thing they say is something spiritually discerned. We are naked. The state that Adam and Eve were in was not goodness. That's bad theology. Adam and Eve were in a state of innocence. What did they eat off of? What was the tree? The knowledge of good and evil. Good and evil. They were in a, they were in a state of innocence. 
It was meant to be humble dependence, humble dependence upon Almighty God. That's what it was supposed to be. But they made a terrible choice. And you know, God was not shocked. That is why it tells us in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the world. Could you imagine what kind of conversation that must have been in eternity past in heaven in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Which brings me to my point that I really want you to think upon deeply. A.W. Tozer said, what you think of God is the most important thing about you. All right, it's the most important thing. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. From his classic, Knowledge of the Holy, page one. It is a thin little book that we should all read because it's amazingly a mix of great theology and it's super devotional at the same time and in the same way. That's a hard mix for Christian authors. But think about it. Our God is so glorious. Psalm 19 verses one and two says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. Have you done it? Have you gone outside in a dark field and just stared up at the masterpiece canvas called the sky? It's miraculous. We are right now wrapping up the Geminids. I think it's the Geminids. Someone who knows more about astronomy, correct me. There's a meteor shower that's coming to a tail end in a day or two. But Linda and I went out and found the darkest street we could in Middlesex County, not many of them. And we just stared up at the sky until we saw a couple streaking, shooting meteorites. And it, is, it is a wonder to behold to think the God who created all of that and the universe runs like clockwork. It is perfectly balanced, perfectly balanced. It's called the anthropic principle. God created a universe just with us in mind and made everything perfectly balanced for life on this little blue marble we call earth. Perfectly balanced. And the same God who did that made you and me and all the connection points in our mind in our immune system in all that we are brothers and sisters our God is so glorious we need to get back to some of the practices of the ancient church where we just meditate upon who God is take one verse if one verse is too immense take a half of a verse and just ruminate on it. You see, God is our highest possible idea. Highest. Humans can think of nothing else. What we think of God says a lot about who we are as individuals and where we are. Because you see, all ideas have consequences. I had a high school student today who argued with me in the middle of Old Testament survey and didn't believe it. 
And he said, well, Jesus paid it all, Dr. J. He's a smarty pants. He thought he had me. I said, George, if you went and robbed a bank and the police caught you, and I assume that they would, could you go to court and say, I know I stole, but Jesus paid it all. I now wish to be acquitted of all charges and keep the money. Everyone else roared in the classroom and thought it was the funniest thing ever. I didn't think I was being really serious. I didn't think it was that funny. He's like, no, I guess they'd probably throw me in jail. I'm like, yep, they sure would because all ideas have consequences as with actions. Good, righteous decisions yield excellent consequences. Bad choices yield horrible consequences. David was a man after God's own heart. And because of his great sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah murdered, he was told by a prophet, a sword shall remain against your house all the days of your life. Did God love David any less? No. No, he didn't. Was there a consequence for those sinful decisions and actions? Yes. Yes, there was. You see, God is the biggest idea anyone can ever have. You can't contemplate something greater than the greatest thing ever. St. Anselm said that a thousand years ago. It's the greatest thing that you can even conceptualize is the Almighty. Therefore, our idea of God has the biggest consequences. If you get your concept of God wrong, you can lead a fairly miserable life. You can lead an even worse eternity. Why should we seek God? One of my greatest mentors, Dr. Norm Geisler, would often say in seminary, from which I took this quote, if we do not live by what is above us, then what is below us will drag down what is within us. If we do not live by what is above us, then what is below us will drag down what is within us. You see, the lower will always pull us down. Paul, writing to the Roman church in Romans 1.22, said, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. I want you to know in Greek, that's a definite article. It doesn't mean a lie. And translations that have a lie are a wrong. It's the lie. And the lie is the same lie that has been propagated by Satan over and over and over again. And you know what that lie is? That lie is not that there is no God. I know people think that's always what it is. Satan's always trying to prove that there's no God. No, that's stupid. God made him. He can't deny the obvious. You know the lie that Satan tells most human minds? It's all good. You've got time. That's the lie. And it's a bad lie. And I'll tell you why. Because the New Testament says today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
And the truth of the matter is this. Tomorrow is promised to none of us. And yet in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem humanity from the curse of the law. See, seeking God will lift us up in every way, shape, and form. Philippians 3.14, which is a quick plug. Throughout the month of January, Chris and I are teaching through Philippians. That's right, we're going to take four whole chapters of Philippians in four whole weeks. Will it be like drinking out of the fire hose? Perhaps. 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 Especially when he teaches. We will focus in on that which is most important throughout Philippians, but I think that there is so much for this group in that Pauline letter. In Philippians 3.14, Paul wrote, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upwards call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you know that as we press on, the truth of the matter is Jesus Christ is the one pressing us on. Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So many young people today are so concerned about so many things that don't matter. I see it. I listen to your conversations. I know you think that's creepy, but it's because I love you. Spoken like a creeper. I, you know, I've been married 22 years, man. My wife has taught me to multitask. I can chew gum and pay a bill online and do one of them, right? Oh my gosh, do you know Johnny likes me? I don't know if I like him back. It's a possibility. He may not ever ask me. I don't know. What do you think about Johnny? If Johnny can't ask you out, he's a loser. Wait for a real man. I'll challenge any one of you guys to step up. Step up and stop being punks. Man, the world's full of punks. The church of Jesus Christ today does not need it. All right? It needs warriors, brother. Be a David. You offended David, he cut your head off and then go write a poem about it. That was, you know, that was David. See all his brothers punking out? They've got Goliath. Goliath's huge. He's from Gath. He's going to kill all of us. He's like, who is this uncircumcised Gentile dog? David was like 14, and Goliath was like a professional assassin. And David is, is delivering cheese and bread to his brothers who were actually trained warriors. And he was a boy. He couldn't even fit into Saul's armor. He goes out with five smooth stones against a killer. And he killed him. My brothers have a warrior spirit but I challenge you to be a tender, romantic warrior, okay? Ladies, you are beautiful. God has created you to be that, a gentle and quiet spirit. And some of you will be more gentle and quiet than others. But exercise the grace that is found in only one place, in Christ alone. Matthew 22, 33 through 40 tells us something very germane here. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. 
Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, what is the greatest command in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Oh, I wish I had 10 minutes here. I love this passage, but I will spare us. All the commandments hang. All the commandments hang on these two commandments. Loving God and loving people. And that's exactly how the Ten Commandments are split on the tablets. God first, and then doing no harm unto people who are created in the image of God and our brothers and sisters collectively. Brothers and sisters, we need to love God. Not a little bit, not a lot of bit, not mostly. We need to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul and all of our mind. And when we do that, the wonderful natural overflow supernaturally will be loving others just as Christ loves them also. You see, oh, a good walk with the Lord Jesus Christ is like eating a good diet. It really is. Having a great walk with Christ is just like eating well. Now look, it's a reality. If you eat, a diet high in sugar and carbs, don't complain when you feel lousy or contract type two diabetes. Ask me how I know. You see, if you want to look and feel healthy, then you need to eat a well-balanced diet. Make sure you're eating plenty of fruits and vegetables, and things that are high in nutrition, and things that are low in white processed sugar, which will only kill you. Eat well, live well. Because the old adage is, you are what you eat. That's a lie. You want to know what, the, what it should be changed to? It won't get changed, trust me, but it should be changed to this. You are what you absorb. Because you can eat a bunch of things, and you don't absorb them. If your body's out of whack, you can eat a nice healthy salad, and because your body's out of whack, your liver will not extract the vitamin D and E it needs to from the leafy greens, because your body's out of whack. And it can spiral out of control and get worse and worse. This is the same thing with our walk with Christ. Usually, when someone's walking and they're getting far from the heart of God, it doesn't just magically draw them back. It gets worse and worse and worse. And this is why the truth of the matter in the church, and I mean this here, and I mean this, you are your brother's keeper. Brothers and sisters, look around, please. Ladies, you are your sister's keeper, okay? Cain got that wrong in the garden. Where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Said the man who just killed his brother in cold-blooded murder. The answer in Christ Jesus is yes, you are. Yes, you are. Because for love's sake, when you see someone going awry, you go after them. 
You know, the Proverbs are so brilliant for us, so filled with godly wisdom. It says, while an enemy will multiply with kisses, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You wanna hear the New Jersey vernacular? An enemy will stab you right in the back as soon as you spin around. Your brother will stab you right in the face and tell you where it's at. You see, an enemy will just kiss up to you, right? Oh, oh yeah, oh, you're so great. And then just totally cut you as soon as you turn around. Totally throw you under the bus and back over you twice. Sell you up the river. Do anything they can do to get ahead. And they make it look nice. That's what an enemy does. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When someone really loves you and is committed to the friendship and committed to your growth, they will step to you and say, you're wrong. Now do right. And get right with the Lord. Jesus wants a relationship with us. He wants it. The Lord of glory, the Lord of glory wants a relationship with us. In John 14, one through four, just a snippet of this. This is often called Jesus's high priestly prayer. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. You have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Christ wants a living, breathing, tangible relationship with us. He is the lover of your soul. And if you have a lover of your soul, guess what else you have? You have one whom hates your very being. This fallen angel is not even given a name in scripture. He's not worthy of it. He's not worthy of a name. He is simply Ha Satan, the accuser. So don't think Satan is his name. It's not, it's a title. Ha Satan, he's the accuser. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. There have been far too many foolish hearted Christians who think somehow that goofy old Satan is like a zoo lion. He's behind bars. He can't get to this. He's got no power. Wrong, my friends, wrong. Peter would not have written this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit if this were not so. so. Our adversary prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
And in pastoral ministry for the last 25 years, I have seen too much of it. I have seen too much of it. It breaks me. It hurts. Sometimes pastoral ministry is a hard calling because you see people doing the same stupid thing over and over again and only ruining their own life. He is out there. And he's a roaring lion. Stay close to the heart of Jesus. To reiterate what Tozer said, what you think of God is the most important thing about you. So how do we do it? How do we seek the one true living God? Well, none of this is rocket science. None of it. It's all super practical application. It's by studying his holy word. It's by studying his holy word because Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Do you know that the word of God is the only perfect mirror in existence? See, when you look in a glass mirror, you get a reversed reflection. You look in it and what is truly on your right looks like it's on your left. When you look into the word of God, it shows you exactly who you are exactly where you're at and exactly where you need to be. It's a perfect mirror, but because it reflects the heart of man back to man and shows him where we are and where we need to be. And it will wash over us, right? Romans 12:1 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know how you get a clean mind? You wash it with Holy Scripture and let the Lord God illuminate and wash over all of the dirt. Sometimes we need to go more, even more than that, more than just reading the word of God. We should all be reading the word of God, but I believe we should be meditating on specific verses. This is how we, like King David in Psalm 119, hide God's word in our heart where David said, I have hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You see, animals in the Levitical law were called ruminators, those who chewed their own cud. Sounds disgusting to us, but there is a spiritual application, I assure you. Animals that chewed their own cud were grass eaters. They ate grass and they chewed it up and they swallowed and they brought it back up and they chewed it a little more and they swallowed it and they brought it back up. This is what a ruminator is. It's an animal that continues to chew on grass. I think God wants us to be like those animals who continually chew on God's word and we swallow it into our hearts and we digest a little bit and we bring it back up again and we chew and chew and we swallow it. But no, there's more to be learned. There's more to be gleaned and we bring it back up again and we chew and swallow, chew and swallow. And when you do that, God's word will manifest itself in you. And in the moment when you are in crisis, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all those things you hid in your heart. A third massive way that we can strengthen our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ is by spending time with other Christians. Yes, I am a huge fellowship guy. 
that doesn't mean we get together, watch the Giants, and say that it was fellowship. No, it's a bunch of dudes pigging out on pork rinds, drinking soda, and watching the Giants lose, because that's what it'll be. However, if during halftime, we break open the Bible and do a 15-minute word search and go through a couple of scripture passages, now it's Christian fellowship. Because Christian fellowship is stirring into, into flame the gifts that is within us. I didn't say pumping each other up. That's egotism. Fanning into flame the gifts of Almighty God. And you know what the beautiful thing is? We're all gifted in different ways. But when we come together, we form a whole collective body. And every little intricate cog in the cog of gears is spinning in the correct direction and making it all beautiful. Fellowship is very important. But modern Christians got to get it out of their gourd that a good hang is not really the definition of fellowship. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. That's just the truth. Fellowship is more than that. Spending time in prayer is probably the least of all the spiritual disciplines in the entire Christian life. I never ask for a show of hands because it's always too embarrassing for everyone present. This is, the, this is the greatest asset that we have because it's twofold. We have a God who is constantly at the ready. The Holy One of Israel does not sleep nor slumber. He's not like a man. So God is always paying attention and waiting and he's patient and he's listening And he's a God who answers prayers. He's not only a prayer listening God, he's a prayer answering God. And a fifth way we need to keep ourselves in the love of God, exactly as it says in Jude 21. That means that's what we need to do. Remember, there are so many things in this world that are vying for your time. Satan, the world, and your own flesh are vying for your time, trying to lull you to sleep, pull you away, get you interested in this next thing or this latest fad. Don't listen. Shut that stuff off and keep yourself in the love of God, the one who willingly died so that we could live. And last but certainly not least, by praising and worshiping the person, plan, and perfection of Jesus Christ. After we're done with our breakout section, we're going to worship and we're going to extol the name of Christ. You want to know why, brothers and sisters? Because he alone is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and praises because he's worthy. And there's no one like him. And in comparison, no one is worthy of praise like Jesus.